We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time he spent on the earth as a man on mission to restore the broken relationship between man and God. The life of Jesus is documented in four books we find in the Bible. Together, these four books are known as the Gospels, and today we're gonna begin in chapter 27 of the Gospel of Matthew. As we pick up our study, Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, has finally given in to the wishes of the Jewish religious leaders and the mob that they have stirred up, and he has ordered the release of the murderer Barabbas, while at the same time sentencing Jesus to be crucified. And before we jump into the text today, I think it's important that we push the pause button, because I was thinking about this as I was prepping the whole message, and I was realizing we need to revisit the question of why this is all happening. Why is Jesus on the earth? Why is he going to die on the cross? And you may be very familiar with what I'm about to share, but it's always good to hear it again. And also, the more you hear it, the more easily you're going to be able to share this with somebody else. And that's a good question to ask yourself is, can you share the whole gospel with people in 10 minutes or less. Do you know how to do that? So let me share this with you. God created everything out of nothing. And at the center of his creation, he put us, men and women, specifically the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And God didn't create us out of any need he had. He's God. He has no needs. He created us to share in his life and enjoy a relationship with him as his representatives on the earth. Any meaningful relationship is going to be based on love. And love can only exist where there's also the choice to not love. Because love has to be a free will decision or it has no meaning. If God just created robots who had no choice but to love them, their love would be meaningless. And so God created Adam and Eve as perfect human beings without even thoughts of evil or sin in them and he put them in a perfect location called Eden. And to create free will in Eden, he gave them the gift of choice by putting one option in the garden, a tree. And he said, you can have and do anything you want except eat of this tree. If you eat from this tree, you're going to die. And you know what happens next. Satan shows up in the garden and tempts Eve to sin and she gives into that temptation and Adam joins her in her sin and that decision changes the world. Not because eating fruit is really, really bad but because it was a decision to reject God. A decision to say, God, no matter how much good you give me, I'd still rather be my own God than do things your way. And the truth is that every single one of us would have done the same thing sooner or later if put in Adam or Eve's position because there's something in each of us that is drawn toward rebellion. There's something in each of us that wants to do something more when we're told we can't do it. As a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, sin enters a previously sinless world and death comes along with it for the first time in history. And man is now separated from God because God can't be around sin so he can't be around man. And I'll tell you why God can't be around sin. If you and I were chatting after church and a guy came up and joined our conversation and he calmly explained that he's one of the most evil men who's ever lived 
and he goes on to casually share in detail some of the terrible things he's done and tell you that he's never been caught and how he can't wait to continue doing these terrible things, we would have to do something about that, right? We would have to do something because there's a sense of justice in you and I. There's a sense of right and wrong and there's a sense in each of us that some things are so awful they need to be dealt with. And that sense of justice comes from God because we're made in his image. Justice is part of the character of God and he put that same character in each of us. And even though our idea of justice has been corrupted by sin, we still have some of it left. And our sense of justice is now based on our level of morality. In other words, as a society, there are things that we have agreed together are not acceptable and should be dealt with. For example, we generally all agree it's not acceptable to murder someone for no reason, and so as a society, we've made that illegal, we've made laws against it, and we've come up with punishments for that specific crime. Generally, we come up with a list of things that are illegal, and their corresponding punishments based on our shared moral standard. We don't punish everyone who lies because we all lie. So we can't meet that moral standard. We do punish murderers because we're able to not all murder people. So we feel that that moral standard is a fair expectation. So you see, our expectations are based on our moral standard. We all understand and believe that it's fair and right for a society to have laws, to have acts that are classified as crimes, and to have punishments for those crimes. We all have a moral standard and a need for justice when that moral standard is horribly violated. So take all that and now expand that idea out to God. What's his moral standard? Perfection. He's absolutely perfect. And so he judges to that moral standard. And he has just as much right to expect us to live to that standard as we have to expect people in our society to live up to the standard of not murdering. Our standards are based on our level of morality. God's standards are based on his level of morality. His level is perfection and he has every right to hold us to that standard. One of the things that we need to realize is that we have a serious, serious problem. Because in case you haven't figured it out, that's a standard we can't possibly meet. We're not gonna be judged against each other we're not gonna be judged against that person we look at and say, I'm way better than them. We're gonna be judged against God and his standard of perfection. One of the things that takes place in the Old Testament of the Bible is that it records God giving man a list of rules and practices. And what makes this list of rules and practices so important is that they detail everything a man would need to do without failure from birth every day of his life in order to meet God's standard of perfection. In other words, the laws and commandments God gives in the Old Testament give us the answer to the question, what makes a man good? What is a good man? Read God's laws in the Old Testament. A person who could keep all of those perfectly would be a good man based on the standards of God. 
The most famous of these rules is the Ten Commandments, and one of the recurring themes of the Old Testament is man's repeated failure to come anywhere even close to keeping God's laws. They fail over and over and over again, and you can read about that in your Bibles. And the whole point of that being recorded is for us to come to the obvious realization we can't meet God's standards. We're in a hopeless situation. And when Jesus showed up on the earth, he revealed that we had actually not been reading his laws accurately. They actually went to an even higher standard than we had realized. Jesus explained that from God's perspective, a single hateful thought toward a person is as bad as murder, and a single lustful thought about a person is as bad as adultery. That's what it's like from God's standard of perfection. We can't meet his standard. And so under God's standards, we're all convicted. We're all sinners. We're all guilty. We're all in a hopeless situation. There's no room for anyone to brag, well, I'm a little less hopeless than you. You're still hopeless. We're all hopeless. So under God's standards, we're all convicted and guilty, and now we move to the sentencing phase, and the issue becomes, what is the appropriate and fair punishment for rejecting God? What's appropriate and fair for rejecting your maker and creator? For spitting in the face of, giving the middle finger to the God of the universe. What's the appropriate punishment for the worst crime anyone could ever commit? Because that's what rejecting God is. Worse than anything anyone could do on earth. The answer to that question is eternity in hell. What is appropriate? What is right? What is fair? What is just? What we deserve for rejecting God? Rejecting Him being the God of our life? What we deserve is hell. And hell is all there is outside of God. If you cannot be with God in eternity, your default destination is hell. And if you've sinned, which we all have, you cannot be with God. Because just like we would have to do something about the evil person who joined our conversation, God would have to do something about your sin and mine if we were to come into his presence. In the laws God gave to man in the Old Testament, there were these requirements of blood sacrifices for sin. And when you first read about this stuff in the Old Testament, it can be really off-putting and really disturbing to read about and visualize all these animals being killed and sacrificed in these rituals ordained by God. It's like Peter's worst nightmare. And uh, there's things like the sprinkling of blood on the altar that seems so violent. And that was the point. That was the point. We as people are supposed to read that. The Israelites as a people were supposed to observe it and be deeply disturbed by all this violence and killing. Because what God was showing us was what sin does. It leads to death. And sin can't be paid for without blood being shed. 
even as all these sacrifices were being made over all these years, it wasn't actually paying for anybody's sin. What it did is it taught people the truth about sin in a real and visceral way, but on an eternal level, it wasn't solving the problem of sin. The best way I can explain to you what it was like, it was like every sacrifice they made for sin was like paying off the interest on a loan, but the problem is you're never actually making a dent in the principal amount that you owe. You're simply deferring payment for those sins. That's what that whole system of sacrifice was. We were all guilty of sin. We were all destined for the eternal death of hell because it's what our sins deserve. But the good news is that the Old Testament was also filled with promises from God that he would provide a solution to our hopeless situation through a savior, a Messiah, one who would somehow take away our sin. And here's what happened. Before the world was ever made, this blows my mind, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit talk among themselves. Because you see, they all know, because they know everything, they know and understand that the result of making humans in their image with free will will be them rejecting God. No matter how they do it, what scenario, what options they tweak, if they create beings in their image with free will in every scenario, they reject God. Do you realize that this, this is the best scenario? When God put Adam and Eve in Eden, that was the absolute best of all the possible scenarios that he could have created. It's not like God could just say, oh, let's just forget it and do something better. Because as long as there's free will, people are gonna choose to rebel against him. And so the Trinity is talking among themselves and they know this and they're discussing what are we gonna do about this? We would love to share our glory, our life, and all the good things we are with people. We'd love to bless people by creating them. But what are we gonna do about this free will issue that man's gonna reject us every single time? And they work backwards. They start with the end goal. And the end goal was us with God in heaven in relationship forever. That's the end goal. But in order for that to happen, this issue of sin had to be dealt with. And each of us had a punishment waiting for us in eternity. The punishment for rejecting God. Eternal death. And so what God decided to do was to store up everyone's eternal punishment like wine in a cup. And then God came up with the solution of one man drinking that cup on behalf of everyone else. In other words, one man being punished on behalf of all men. But in order for God's need for justice to be satisfied, this one man would have to be perfect, completely without sin. And he would have to die a very specific death if he were to pay for the sins of all men. And incredibly, Jesus the Son said, I'll do it. And incredibly, God the Father said, I'll allow it. And so Jesus came to the earth as a man and he did what we never could. He lived a perfect life. He lived every single day of his life without sinning, perfectly fulfilling all of those laws God had given in the Old Testament. And most remarkably, he came to die in our place as our perfect sinless sacrifice because the agony of torture and death on the cross is what God required to satisfy his need for justice. 
or we can't fully understand the why, there's something about the death that Jesus died that satisfied God's need for justice and made him say, that's enough. Justice is done at that point. And lastly, Jesus came to rise from the dead in our place, proving that sin does not have the power of death over us anymore. Lived a perfect life in our place, took our sin upon himself, was punished in our place, and rose again in our place. Why? So that we could be set free from the curse and death sentence of sin and instead be brought back into relationship with God forever. Why? This really is the most incredible part. Because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you on a level and in a way that is deeper, higher, wider, and greater, and stronger than anything you could imagine. If there's one thing the cross speaks to each of us, it's this. Jesus loves you. He loves you. And as we work our way through the crucifixion, I want you to remember that's why this is all happening. And as we work our way through the crucifixion, I hope that you'll be impacted by how much he loves you and the lengths he went to because he loves you. So write this down on your outlines. This is your first fill-in. Jesus was willing to be scourged and crucified because he loves me. Because he loves me. That beautiful and that simple. At this point, we're gonna jump into our text and pick things up halfway through verse 26 of Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, halfway through verse 26, we read, and when he, Pilate, had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The first part of a crucifixion would sometimes be scourging to weaken and dehumanize the victim. As we learned last week, there were three levels of scourgings. Jesus had already suffered through the first level of fustigatio scourging, which was a beating with a staff. But this was something else entirely. This was a verberatio, the most severe form of scourging, a horribly cruel act which most of the time would result in the recipient dying long before they ever reached their cross. The victim would be stripped, tied to a post, and brutally beaten by multiple soldiers. For victims like Jesus who were not Roman citizens, the preferred instrument was a short wooden handle with several leather thongs attached to it. The whip was known as a flagellum and each leather thong would have metal balls, pieces of bone and glass close to the end of each leather thong so that with each stroke, the metal balls would beat the body and create welts that would immediately swell up, making it easier for the glass and the bone to tear in and pull off the flesh. And as you can imagine, with each stroke, the flesh becomes tenderized like meat being grinded and more is being pulled off and the pain is getting worse and worse and worse. And these leather thongs were long enough that with each stroke, a man would be hit from the base of his neck down to the backs of his knees. And if you've seen the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, you need to know that historians tell us that Mel Gibson didn't go nearly far enough in his depiction of the scourging of Jesus, which is barely watchable in that movie. 
but he couldn't have actually gone far enough to be historically accurate. Josephus, the Roman historian, recorded observing one of these scourgings where so much flesh was pulled off a man that his internal organs began to fall out as he collapsed and died. It was normal for the flagellum to pull off enough flesh to expose the spine and bones of a man's back, and that's most likely what happened to Jesus. The procedure was indescribably painful, and death was the most common outcome. And most of us as believers, we understand the need for the cross, but have you ever wondered why the scourging? Why the scourging? As I mentioned earlier, I believe it was all a package deal, if you will. This is what it took to satisfy God's holy and righteous need for justice against sin. So it was all a package deal, but there's something else going on. If I'm honest, I don't understand exactly how it works, but I need to bring it to your attention. I put this on your outline. In Isaiah 53.5, it was prophesied of Jesus that by his stripes we are healed. When it says stripes, it's talking about the wounds from the scourging. It's not talking about what happened to him on the cross. And Peter says in the New Testament that by his stripes you were healed. And I know that many times as believers we can become cynical and jaded toward the idea that that Jesus can really heal us today. That he can really heal our bodies, that he can really lift a depression, that he can really exercise an addiction and make us whole in a way that actually affects our daily lives. Uh, What I want to remind us of is that the healing Jesus offers us, be it of mind, body, or spirit, the wholeness Jesus offers us, the Bible says it's made possible by the scourging of Jesus, which was not a light or fluffy or rhetorical event. It was real and meaningful. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11, written by the Apostle Paul, he warns the Corinthian church that many of them are weak, sick, and even dying because they're taking communion without having proper respect for what the body of Jesus went through. In other words, they weren't taking the healing power of Jesus' scourging seriously, and so they were weak, sick, and even dying unnecessarily. That's what the Apostle Paul says. So I hope that when you take communion today, you'll remember what it represents, and that the healing Jesus offers you is blood-bought, it's real, and it's powerful. Make a note of this on your outlines. Jesus was scourged so that I could be healed. Jesus was scourged so that I could be healed. And I encourage you anytime you're praying for prayer for someone or for yourself to claim that promise as you pray. Say, thank you, Lord, that your word says, by your stripes we are healed. Amen. Amen. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. Again, the praetorium is the Roman governor's residence. It's Pilate's residence when he was in Jerusalem. It was most likely in the fortress Antonia, the Roman military headquarters in the city that was adjacent to the temple. A garrison would have been around 600 soldiers, and so all of them who weren't on duty gathered together to further mock Jesus. Verse 28 says... 
and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, one of the soldier's cloaks, the closest thing they could find to purple, the color of royalty. And if you've been studying with us, you'll realize they do this over and over again, beating Jesus, scourging Jesus, and then putting royal decorations on him to mock his claim to be a king. And as they were putting this robe on and off at this point, it would have been excruciating as the wounds on his back bound to the robe and then to have it ripped off again would be unbearable in the level of pain. Verse 29, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed, it would have been something like a stick of bamboo in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. They're holding a, a mock coronation for King Jesus, putting a flimsy reed in his hand as a royal scepter. And the idea is that with each blow of this reed on his head, they're driving the thorns deeper into the head of Jesus. And John tells us they hit Jesus with their fists as well. You and I need to understand that the blows Jesus took to his face from the Sanhedrin and the Roman soldiers left him unrecognizable. I put this verse on your outlines. In Isaiah 5.15, it says, speaking prophetically of Jesus, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, that means his appearance, was marred, that means just ruined, more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. What that verse is saying is that Jesus' face was literally beaten to the point of being so unrecognizable that no man has ever been alive and had a face that badly beaten ever. That's what that verse is literally saying. Nobody would have recognized him. Even in heaven, Jesus will still bear some sort of physical evidence of what he endured on the cross. We know this because in Revelation 5, 6, again on your outline, the apostle John writes, and I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, story for another day, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, that's Jesus, as though it had been slain. It's been well said that the only man-made things in heaven are the scars on the body of Jesus. When they had done all these things, they put Jesus' own clothes back on him, placed his cross on his shoulders, and led him away to be crucified. And to add to their humiliation, victims of crucifixion would be forced to carry their own cross to their execution site. This would have been just the horizontal beam, the bar of the cross, and it would usually weigh around 200 pounds. Miraculously, after his scourging, Jesus still summons the strength to carry his cross from the fortress Antonia to the city gate, where weakened by a sleepless night in the scourging, he was unable to carry it any further. As a side note, many of you have probably heard of the Via Dolorosa, which is the street in Jerusalem, the tourist trap that follows the path Jesus supposedly took carrying his cross to the execution site, Golgotha. It's a Catholic tradition, sorry to ruin this for everybody, it's a Catholic tradition that is historically inaccurate 
because it presumes a starting point that doesn't line up with the gospel accounts. Jesus began carrying his cross from the Fortress Antonia and the Via Della Rosa follows a completely different point. I'm really sorry if you've been to Jerusalem and had a profound experience on the Via Della Rosa and I just ruined it for you, but I just thought you deserved to know the truth. That's sort of what I do, right? I just completely destroy the most cherished traditions of the Christian faith, okay. At this time, I'm gonna ask you to turn ahead in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 23, 26. Luke 23, 26. And we read this. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross so that he might bear it after Jesus. Normally, a Caternian, which is four Roman soldiers, would escort the prisoner through the crowds to the place of crucifixion. And one of the soldiers would tap a man on the shoulder with the flat side of his spear, which meant whoever got tapped was compelled to do what that Roman soldier asked them to do for a specific period of time. Sometimes that Roman soldier would ask that man to carry his shield and all of his equipment and they were compelled by Roman law to do it for at least the distance of a mile. In a situation like this, they could compel a man to help a prisoner carry his crossbeam to his execution site. The idea is, I'll tap you on the shoulder with the flat side of my spear. If you say no, I'll tap you on the shoulder with the not flat side of my spear. That was the idea behind that. So one way or another, you were gonna help out, basically. That random man in this situation was Simon. He was a black Jewish man from the modern day region of Libya. And he had traveled over 800 miles to be in Jerusalem for Passover. This was most likely a once-in-a-lifetime trip for Simon, something he'd been dreaming about for years, and it was interrupted by Jesus making his way to be crucified. Mark tells us that this Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, which is interesting because in his letter to the Roman church, the Apostle Paul sends his greetings to Rufus, whom he calls chosen in the Lord, and Paul also sends his greetings to Rufus's mother, who he says is like a mother to him as well. What this means is that Simon's wife and Simon's son became friends of the Apostle Paul and leaders in the Roman church, which means that Simon became a Christian and his whole family along with him. In Acts 13.1, there's a list given of notable prophets and teachers in the church in Antioch. And on that list is a man named Simeon, which is literally the same name as Simon. And it says in there, in Acts 13.1, it calls him literally Simon the black man. And many believe, I think very accurately, that that Simeon is this same Simon the Cyrenian who carried the cross of Jesus. You know, when the Lord causes you to bear a burden, you can make a note of this. When the Lord causes you to carry a cross, it's always so you can get closer to him. When the Lord causes you to bear a burden, it's always so you can get closer to him, so you can be saved, you can be healed, you can be made whole. Simon was there thinking, just trying to come, make my pilgrimage, have Passover, traveled 800 miles, now I get stuck carrying this guy's cross. But by the end of that Passover time, he was probably still in Jerusalem, probably stuck around, 
and was one of the first converts in the Christian church and was saved by Jesus. Verse 27, and a great multitude of the people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented him. These women were most likely professional mourners who were paid to be present at the crucifixion of every Jew. There's no indication these women were disciples of Jesus. Verse 28, but Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Normally children are referred to in the Bible as a blessing, but Jesus is talking about the coming judgment which will fall on Jerusalem in 70 AD and the decades that followed in which the city and country would be destroyed. That judgment will be the result of the Jews rejecting Jesus. And Jesus himself says it's gonna be so bad that it will be a blessing to not have any children because you won't have to mourn for any children that you've had to watch be killed in what's going to happen. Jesus continues talking about that time in verse 30 and he says, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Little side note for you Bible students, if you've been through our Revelation study, you might recognize how similar that sounds to what the people on earth cry out in Revelation 6.16 when Jesus begins to pour out his wrath on the earth in the time period known as the Great Tribulation. The collapse of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the fall of Israel in the years that followed were part of the judgment of God on the Jews for rejecting Jesus. The Great Tribulation will be part of the judgment of God upon the Gentiles for rejecting Jesus. Verse 31, for if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? This is clearly some sort of proverb that everyone at that time would have understood, but we're not honestly on that sure what it means. Our best guess is that Jesus is saying something along the lines of, if this is what they're doing to me, Messiah, and if this is what is happening while I'm here, what do you think is gonna happen when I'm gone? Speaking literally and spiritually. Verse 32, there were also two others, criminals led with him to be put to death. At this point, Mark's gospel tells us, I put this on your outlines, and they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Golgotha is Aramaic and it means skull. Calvary is Latin and it comes from the word calvaria, which also means skull. So Calvary, Golgotha, it really means the same thing, one in Aramaic, one in Latin. It may have been a skull-shaped hill, but it may have been named that because as a crucifixion site, it accumulated literal skulls. None of the gospel accounts actually mention a hill. That's complete speculation when we talk about the hill of Calvary. And without doing a whole separate study on this, I'll just tell you that surprise, surprise, the traditional crucifixion site, the famous holy church of the sepulcher is completely wrong. It's one of those sites that was arbitrarily chosen by Constantine's mother when she went through Israel designating sites as being so-called holy sites with little to no historical information or knowledge whatsoever. The most likely location of where Calvary is in Israel is a bus stop right now. That's what it is, literally, but there's probably something perfect about that. Then we read this in Mark. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh, underline that word myrrh on your outlines, to drink, but he did not take it. 
Myrrh is actually a narcotic. You see, the Jews had a custom of administering this pain-deadening medication mixed with wine to victims of crucifixion as they were dying in order to deaden the pain. They based this on Proverbs 31.6, which is on your outlines, and it says, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. But once Jesus tasted what it was, once he knew there was myrrh in it, this narcotic that would deaden his pain, it says he did not take it because of the risk that it might dull his senses before he had completed his task. We'll talk about this more next week, but we can see and understand the physical side of what Jesus went through. But the truth is we won't really understand what happened on a spiritual level until we arrive in heaven. We, we don't know what that looked like or how that played out exactly. While the lessening of his physical pain probably wouldn't have diminished the power of his atoning work, it wouldn't have made it not count, Jesus needed his mind fully engaged for the hours ahead. You see, he needed to be awake and fully conscious to do things like minister to the thief next to him on the cross, which we'll learn about in our next study. You'll also recall the word myrrh because it was one of the gifts that was brought by the Magi to Jesus when he was a toddler. Again, it's a narcotic. It's used for burial, embalming, and for deadening pain. It's a strange gift to give to a toddler. It was very strange, it was valuable, but it was given because it prophesied this moment and the coming time when it would be used in the embalming of Jesus' body. From the time he was a toddler, the gifts of the Magi were pointing ahead to his future, including his death. Verse 33, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. I'm back in Luke now, sorry. Crucifixion was a, a form of punishment that was perfected by the Romans after being passed down from the Persians, the Phoenicians, and the Carthaginians. The Romans perfected it by making it last as long as possible, putting the victim to an agonizingly slow death. Some victims even lingered until they were eaten alive by birds of prey or wild beasts. Most hung on the cross for days before dying of exhaustion, dehydration, traumatic fever, or most likely suffocation. If a person had not been scourged before crucifixion, it could take them up to nine days to die on the cross. The word excruciating literally means out of the cross. It's where we get the word excruciating from. Jesus would have been stripped naked to add to his humiliation and had his arms stretched out across the horizontal beam as nails were driven through his hands. Then that horizontal beam would have been raised up and nailed to the vertical beam of the cross. Then Jesus' feet would have been nailed to the cross through the instep or the Achilles tendon, sometimes using one nail for both feet. None of these wounds would be fatal but their pain would become unbearable as the hours dragged on. You see, as gravity would pull your body down, your lungs would fall into the empty position. And so every time you wanted to take breath in, you would have to push yourself up, and the only leverage would be your nailed hands and feet, which would have been literally excruciating. If you didn't die from shock, blood loss, exhaustion, or dehydration, 
When the legs could no longer support the weight of your body, you would no longer be able to get air into your lungs and you would suffocate to death. That's why after a certain period of time, sometimes a Roman soldier would be tasked with breaking the legs of people on the cross, which would hasten their death by suffocation. Crucifixion was the most shameful, humiliating, and excruciating death a person could suffer. It was described by the Roman writer Cicero as the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. Mark's gospel tells us it was the third hour when Jesus was crucified. That was by the Jewish reckoning of time which made it around 9 a.m. in the morning. Then we read they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. These were not simple thieves as robbery was not a capital offense under Roman law. These were probably cohorts of Barabbas. They were rebels, guerrilla fighters against Rome, that sort of thing. And Mark also points out that Jesus being crucified with criminals on either side of him fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53:12, which reads, he was numbered among the transgressors. As I was preparing this message, I found myself just marveling at the restraint of Jesus for not vaporizing the soldiers who mocked him for claiming to be a king. And then I remember that you and I have been beneficiaries of that same patience. The Lord's been so patient with me. He's been so patient with you. How many times have we mocked his claim to be king by doing our own thing? and acting as though we were king. Rejecting what we knew was his will for us and instead choosing to be our own God. Second Peter 3.9 says that God is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All God wants is for people to live, for you and I to live, to experience the fullness of life here and in eternity that we were created for, the kind of life that can only be found in him. All he wants is for us to live. He's so patient with you and I, and I want to encourage you today to use this coming time of worship to thank the Lord for his patience, for his grace, for his kindness toward us. And remember too, by his stripes you are healed. Thank him for that. Claim that. Receive that. Believe that for those in your life that you're praying for. And don't take communion lightly. What a sad thing it would be if any of us would be weak or sick or even dying simply because we don't take seriously the power, the healing power of Jesus that's available to us. Jesus went to the cross in your place. He, he suffered and died in your place so that you could live forever with him in the relationship you were created for because he loves you. Don't leave today without knowing that you're forgiven and that you're in a relationship with Jesus. And the way you do that is by believing in him, believing in what he's done for you, and then following him, giving your life to him, making him the Lord and king of your life. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I just wanna pray for us together. Father, thank you so much for allowing your son Jesus to die for us. And Jesus, thank you for coming to the earth to give yourself for us, to live the life we couldn't live, to receive the punishment that would have sent us to eternity in hell separated from you.
and then to rise from the grave so that we could experience life that can never be taken away from us. Thank you, Jesus, that by your stripes we are healed. Lord, I pray for any among us who may have become cynical and jaded, lost faith in your ability to heal. I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would stir and give the gift of faith to remember that your healing power is as real as the scourging that you suffered on our behalf. And so Father, where we need it, we receive your healing. We welcome it, we believe it, we take hold of it, Jesus. Father, help us to never take it for granted. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, as we take communion in this coming time and worship, we just wanna say thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that all you want is for us to live and experience life. You're so patient with us and we love you for it, Jesus.